Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. Every Monday at 10 a.m., that's 10 a.m. Eastern U.S. time, but since we're totally global, you'll have to check what time that is for you. And you can catch dozens of our back shows, including this one, uh, maybe by tomorrow, in our archive at visionaries.podbean, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N as in Nancy, dot com. And on Visionaries, we talk with visionaries, people in the arts, technology, science, culture, and spirituality, about how we can enrich the world and ourselves by tapping into the energies of the cosmos through creativity. Our special guest today is Christine Peterson. She's co-founder and former president of Foresight Institute, which you'll find at foresight.org. So um, we'll do more introduction in a while, but Christine, welcome. Hello, Christine, you there? Yes, can you hear me? Great, yes, terrific. So just to let our audience know, starting a few years ago, I discovered Foresight Institute and started going to its conferences. And then around the same time, someone with the remarkable name of John Smart was organizing conferences called Accelerating Change. And in both cases, one of the more interesting speakers was Christine. Uh, So, Christine, uh, Foresight is dedicated to promoting nanotechnology. So tell us what we mean by nanotechnology. Well, the term itself has been used for a lot of different levels of miniaturization. Um, We originally used it to define uh, a type of technology where uh, you can build large objects with atomic precision, in other words, with every atom and molecule in a specified location. Since then, uh, the term has broadened out to include a wide variety of materials and devices that are very small, um, under 100 nanometers. So um, uh, I've heard Eric Drexler, who's kind of the founder of the field in his book, Engines of Creation, Eric and Chris uh, Christine are co-founders of Foresight, being very disappointed at the expansion of the term and a sort of, um, oh, uh, dismissing of this original, shall we call it, molecular manufacturing approach where you assemble by single atoms. So what would be the reason to make things that way? To make things uh, with atomic precision? Right. Okay. Uh, the, the main reason is that that is the way to get the ultimate performance out of devices and materials. And we see that kind of thing in the body. For example, DNA uh, is based on this idea that you want, you want to have every molecule, every atom in a given location so that, um, in the case of DNA, it can, it can form an information pattern that your body can use. Um, also, atomic precision would give you much better materials properties, for example, super strong materials. You could also make super dense computing. It's, it's basically uh, taking to the ultimate level 
the, prog- the progress we've been making in miniaturization for a millennia, really. Interesting. And this idea of manufacturing, I can see how <clears throat> making a computer chip that way, if computer chip sells a very advanced one, say for $1,000 or more, uh, to very expensively make one that's super precise, so maybe you can make wires one atom wide and things like that. But I understand the vision here also includes a, a toaster oven-sized device that we might have in our homes with feedstocks of carbon and hydrogen, et cetera. And you'd have a little keypad that you could program to make just about anything. So what would be the advantage of that and how far along do you think we are? How far off till we maybe can have that kind of thing in our homes? We already see this idea of local localized manufacturing starting with the uh, 3D printers. You can buy a 3D printer now um, to use in the home, mostly to for hobbyists have it. You can, um, it's even, you can even get them for kids to play with. So the idea of making things in the home is already out there. I think the benefit of doing it uh, with atomic precision is, well, you could build just about anything to the limit of... Uh, to the, to the limit that physical law allows in terms of quality, um, no matter what it is you would want to build. Now, the, the benefit of localized manufacturing uh, is mainly would be not having to transport these objects around and also uh, speed of delivery. Of course, we've all gotten used to that with uh, how fast Amazon delivers, but um, building something in your house is about as fast as you can get it. And then... Um, this question of uh, personalization, you know, having control of the type of products that you want, that you want to get. Interesting. And the uh, there's a little video. Uh, these days it takes me a little bit of effort to find it online. But it shows a molecular manufacturing of a laptop computer and because of this precision, it has a billion processors. So... Uh, we're, you know, I, I think we have to, um, we look at our cell phones and say, that's cool. And the next generation cell phone is a little bit better, our smartphone. But um, that isn't, you know, that's temporary. <laughs> you know, 10 years from now, we could have something totally, you know, a thousand times more powerful and totally different than what we have today. And, uh, you know, a laptop computer with a billion processors might uh, bring about things we're not thinking of today. Well, that's right. And even if the paradigm of computing changes, which I think it will, either to maybe to optical computing, quantum computing, and so on, you always want to have control of the hardware. You want the hardware to be built to the ultimate level of precision that, that is physically possible. And uh, that's what this type of molecular manufacturing will, will enable. Cool. So what are the, what are, um, are there, the, the idea uh, as originally presented is that, uh, I think the phrase was, we could make anything as cheap as potatoes. And, and, and the idea is we would make anything. Is it still seen that way? Is it, does that make sense? Or maybe only those things where the precision uh, would be ultra important? I think the principle is still true. I think um, 
even when that was originally said, it might depend, for example, on the type of atoms you're using. For example, if you're using very exotic atoms, uh, then there's going to be a certain cost to obtain those. But um, for common materials made out of the typical atoms that we see around us now, then in principle, in the long term, then I don't see a reason why that initial statement that uh, physical objects that you build should cost about as much per pound as a potato. Uh, that seems plausible to me. And of course, the best building material is diamond, and diamond is carbon, and carbon is one of the most common elements we have. Exactly so. That is true. So we might be making diamond automobiles. <laughs> It's possible, especially since um, diamondoid materials, diamond-like materials, are some of the strongest materials out there. And, of course, when you build a car, what you're trying to do is maximize the strength of the material compared to its weight. In other words, you want as light a material as possible, but you need that strength, uh, both to carry the people around and, more importantly, to protect them in a crash. Yeah, so going back to your comment about computing, have you seen uh, the videos online recently by Neil Gershenfeld of Center of Bits and Atoms at uh, MIT? I haven't watched them, but I've been hearing about them, and I said, oh, you know, I really better get on there and watch those. And what do you think of them? Well, it's it's really mind-blowing because he, he starts by uh, talking about Turing and um, von Neumann machine, von Neumann architectures, and saying those were, in fact, a kind of a kludge because of what was available at that time. And now that we can be more, uh, we're approaching atomic precision, uh, we should totally rethink of computing. And then he totally conflates uh, the physics of computer architecture with programming. Ultimately, they're the same thing. And that you start by thinking of a machine that can assemble Lego blocks, and then these Lego blocks become miniaturized, and then that assembly process becomes, in fact, the the computation process. And then the computation and making become the same thing. So if you think about a 3D printer, the 3D printer is controlled by the computer that is outside of it. But uh, when we make uh, a human being uh, or an oak tree, the instructions are part of the material. The, the computation and instructions are in the material in case of living things in the DNA, and that that should be the computer architecture of our emerging future. So uh, between him and the stuff that Stephen Wolfram has been saying uh, along these lines, I think they're the two most exciting talking about uh, where this could be going. But Gershenfeld, I think, goes beyond Wolfram in that actually rethinking what computer architecture is in terms of these ideas. Well, that all sounds plausible to me. Um, and it's not surprising it would come out of a place called the Center for Bits and Atoms, right? right. That's exactly where these ideas all came from originally, thinking, and again, it was at MIT originally with Eric Drexler. That's where he also was. 
when he first started thinking about bits and atoms. So, so it all makes sense, and it's good to see these ideas um, propagating and developing. That's great. Terrific. So um, tell us how, uh, who founded uh, Foresight Institute, what it originally was doing, and what it's been doing recently. Uh, Foresight was founded back in the 80s by Eric Drexler and myself. Um, He had been coming up with the original ideas of nanotechnology and molecular manufacturing while he was at MIT. But we felt that um, to do the education and the outreach that needed to be done to the scientific community and the technological uh, community, we felt that California and Silicon Valley was probably the place to be. So that's where Foresight was founded. And uh, initially, we had to do a tremendous amount of education in the technical and scientific communities because this was before the invention of the scanning tunneling microscope right around that time uh, when it was, uh, I I think perhaps it had been invented, but people weren't aware of it. Uh, But even within the scientific communities, even at the highest levels, there was a lot of confusion about whether atomic precision was even possible so, to do. So this is before we all saw that picture of IBM written with single atoms. Right, exactly. And then, of course, when that picture came out, it helped tremendously for people to understand, oh, you mean it's not physically impossible um, to manipulate individual atoms, which really should have been obvious since, the, as, as you probably know, Back in 1959, the famous physicist Richard Feynman had pointed it out at that even that early. So, but it took a long time uh, until an actual experimental demonstration was made before that realization really sunk into the scientific community. And once that uh, that clicked for folks, then they were able to say, "Oh, you know, you're right. If you look at nature, these there are molecular machines in nature, and in principle." Obviously, we could modify those. We could even perhaps design and build our own entirely different ones. So those ideas gradually sunk in over to, over the time. So that was our initial work. Boy, that must are, be, dealing with those skeptics must have been a headache. For our listeners who uh, who are, I, I think most of our listeners are on a computer or a a smart device. So if you want to just jump over to Google and put in Feynman, F-E-Y-N-M-A-N, and then there's plenty of room at the bottom. You'll find this famous paper, which introduced this idea that, um, well, smaller and smaller, and you can eventually start talking about uh, manipulating atoms. <laughs> and then... Uh, as uh, Christine was pointing out, the uh, Engines of Creation is the book by Eric Drexler based on his thesis that uh, sort of launched the idea that we could actually manufacture things and think of little arms that could pick up individual uh, atoms and assemble them. And of course, you'd need a lot of them uh, in order to make something of any size. But that sort of introduced the idea. So that book is still relevant today, although you could pick up his newer book, Radical Abundance, to be more up-to-date. But Engines of Creation still presents the uh, basic ideas. So, Christine, after you started getting the scientific communities uh, uh, acclimatized to these ideas, what did Foresight do next? 
what we have found, John, is that if you want to move some a field forward of this type, which is highly multidisciplinary, rather than have a traditional conference where individual scientists come and present their work and everybody else sits in the audience and asks questions, uh, what works much better is to invite a selected team of uh, people from, from a select number of disciplines and target them at a smaller workshop on a specific technical and scientific problem. So rather than our traditional conferences, which we did for many years, I think the time for that type of uh, event, uh, may co- perhaps it may come again, but for now we're focused more on moving things forward in a very focused way. So we have two or three very intensive workshops per year where we ha- they're invitational, and um, we bring in, for example, physicists, chemists, biologists, uh, and target them at a specific topic. The last one we did was on atomic precision for longevity. So we were looking at the question of can we extend the human health span and the human lifespan using atomic precision and molecular manufacturing, and how would you do that? So I'm just Uh, curious, how long do those, how many days do those conferences tend to go? Um, We've experimented. We've gone anywhere from um, two days, two and a half days, three days, these are busy people, so if you get three days out of them, that's about all you're going to get. So we're still playing with the format. But um, we make them work very hard, and by the end of that period, whether it's two days or three days, they're pretty tired and they need to go home. So just pardon my curiosity, but uh, does Foresight uh, pay their expenses, or does this come out of their own budgets? Um, lately, we've been able to cover their travel expenses, and then they contribute their time. Great. So uh, now, do, does other than that they all uh, feed into each other, is there any way that this is published or uh, recorded or whatever? Yes. What we try to do for each one of these workshops is we um, produce usually a video, and that's for the general public. Uh, and then also we do a white paper, which is a bit more technical, perhaps um, more uh, accessible to people who have some kind of science or technology background. So we do try to produce at least those two outputs from each workshop. So if you had to, uh, first of all, uh, to distinguish what we're talking about here from um, things like cosmetics and stain-resistant chinos. Uh, What are the terms that you use today to describe the approach that Foresight is promoting? Well, we use uh, terms that try to get across this concept of atomic precision. For example, uh, molecular machine systems, atomically precise manufacturing, molecular nanotechnology, Uh, atomic precision. These are the kinds of terms that you'll see referring to this ambitious type of nanotechnology. Great. And um, I haven't, uh, for our listeners, at some point I'll do a show on TimeShip, but I uh, work with a project called TimeShip that you'll find at timeship.org, and it works in, uh, it's, it's, well, we will be building a next-generation uh, cryonics 
facility. And so we work with people in that field. So I sort of follow the uh, life extension and longevity issue. So what uh, what have you people been coming up with in the relationship of um, this atomic precision and uh, life extension? Well, basically, if you look at this question of, uh, of what causes the aging process, they're, uh, they've identified about seven or eight major aging processes that occur in the human body. And there's a couple different ways to come at that problem. You can, for each one of those, you can say, well, we're going to try to prevent that from happening. Um, or for those of us who, in whom the, the process has already happened and, and is continuing, you can say, well, how are we going to repair this damage? Um, those are both relevant approaches for each one of these. So at these events, what we do is we say, all right, what is the state of the art in terms of molecular manufacturing today, and how can it be applied to these problems in medicine and biology? Um, for example, at the last event, we have a little contest at the end to see what's the most uh, interesting application we've been able to think up. And we had some folks there who have some filtration technology. They're able to do very precise molecular scale filtration uh, and the question was gee can you apply this to the bloodstream because uh, you probably are aware and some of your listeners may know that they've been doing some fascinating work looking at what is in the blood of older people versus young people and they're finding wow there's there's something in this older blood that is causing problems and really needs to be removed so uh, first we need to identify, well, what are those substances that are causing problems? And then use perhaps this molecular scale filtration process to remove that, those materials in an ongoing fashion. Interesting. Um, yeah. I can't wait. <laughs> I'm 75, so <laughs> it can't I know. come too soon for me. Let's hurry, let's hurry this up, right? You know, it's interesting how... Um, just in the past few years, we see people like uh, Richard Branson and uh, Larry Page and on and on, uh, even Mark Zuckerberg, uh, are getting older. And then they say, what's this aging thing? And then they go to their biotech friends and say, well, how do you fix it? And they say, well, uh, it'll take a billion dollars. And they say, well, here's a check. <laughs> In other words, there are people who are going to, you know, as this starts to um, hopefully produce results, there will be backers for it. There will be. You're right. Some of these folks who made their money quite young are now realizing that no matter how rich you are, the aging process still happens. And oh. it's something that they, try, they, want to, they want to use their money to try to fix that problem. And I hope they do because we'll all benefit. Great. So to jump around here, uh, you're known as the person who coined the term open source software. And so what do we mean by open source software? And uh, how did you get involved? And what are the implications going forward? What we mean when we say open source software is that when we have a piece of software, any kind of code that's running either on your computer or on, even on your phone, 
um, underlying that is some code that was written generally by a human being, and there's two kinds of software. There's proprietary secret software where you, you are not allowed to see that code, so you don't really know, and, and no one outside the company really knows what's in there. Or there are some types of software, the type we call open source, where you're allowed to see that code, you can read it, and if you want, you can change it. So that's the difference. It's a question of who's controlling the software that's on your computer and on your phone. Can you find out what it's doing? Are you even allowed to know what it's doing? Uh, and are you allowed to change it if you want to? Mm. So that's the benefit from open source software. So there's a phrase and. um I'm not sure if it's Peter Diamantis or, but uh, that the smartest people in the world do not work for your company. And so <clears throat> there's this idea of for certain kinds of problems, companies may want to uh, put out a proposal that anyone can, you know, make suggestions, get involved. I believe there was a gold mining company that uh, did that, and it's described in some of the books as an example of this. So uh, Apache and Linux are famous examples of open source software that, um, I guess they're the whole set of rules, right, where anybody can use it, it's free, You and if you make improvements, you've got to make those available to everybody else. Yeah, there are there are different versions, but those are some of the basic rules. Uh, and it's been I, I think it's probably true that um, if you have a lot of different people all over the world looking at a set, a set of software instructions, some software code, uh, if there are errors in it, you're more likely to find them quickly. And uh, we've all noticed the huge number of security break-ins that we're having continually now, not just in um, not just in minor ways, in major, major break-ins into software databases, uh, including at our U.S. federal government, including at the major credit agency, Equifax. Um, so our private information is totally unprotected because these organizations apparently are not good at computer security. So uh, the day is going to come when we get serious about this and say, hey, let's stop allowing... Uh, poor security on our computers. We really need to stop doing this. Uh, yeah, computer security is a big one now that everybody's freaked out about uh, their credit records. But uh, going back to people all over the world looking at it, I think it's only in the past couple of years we realized how good this can be. I mean, with the two examples of what well, the example of uh, Linux which is the most widely used platform, is open source. But also, uh, you and I are of an age where we followed the development of Wikipedia and picked something that one is an expert in. I happen to know a lot about the mythologist Joseph Campbell, wrote a book about him, and I wrote a book about the architect Louis Kahn. So I'll go and look at the articles on these people in uh, Wikipedia. And it's interesting to see something that was built by, in a very, I don't know what the word would be, random way of people just contributing, comes out to be so coherent and uh, 
of course, we, you know, we hope that it's accurate. And when I see something that's inaccurate, I fix it. But uh, to see something that can come together with such coherence, even though it's created by uh, an infinite committee with no chairperson. <laughs> it is remarkable. Um, and that's the power of collaboration among a very large number of people all working together in an open fashion to improve in that case, a document online, or in the case of software, we call it open source software. Right. And it's only in the past, you know, maybe 15 years ago, if you had said, would this be possible, people wouldn't be sure. Now we know it can, maybe that won't always work, but we know it can be done and with these examples. Um, so, <clears throat> yes, we all hope that someone's not using our credit cards as we speak here. But uh, you've also been involved in artificial intelligence. Have you uh, read Max Tegmark's Life 3.0? I haven't read it yet. It's certainly on my list. Um, have you? I have just finished read it, it already. Yeah, I just finished yeah. it. I'm a, I'm a terrible reader, so I uh, if it's on uh, if it's on audio book, I'll I'll get to it right away. So I just finished the audio version, and. There are things actually at uh, the conferences I was mentioning earlier. Maybe you'll remember his name, but there's somebody who is promoting the idea of um, beneficial AI. Does that ring a bell? Oh, yeah. That was originally Eliezer Yudkowsky. Yeah. So I would see him at the various conferences, and my response was, duh, who would be in favor of unbeneficial AI. But Max Tegmark really is very convincing that we got to be careful <laughs> that, uh, you know, this stuff could be a problem. So the book is really excellent. I strongly recommend it to our listeners. And uh, so tell us about your involvement in AI and what you see coming. Well, of course, Ed, uh, John, since you read Engines of Creation many years ago, you know it, all, it, even in the 80s, was looking at this issue of artificial intelligence. Um, and, and then, as you pointed out, Eliezer Yudkowsky was bringing it up um, at Foresight events um, years later. Uh, and now, of course, it's a big, a big debate. We have people like Max and Eliezer on one side saying, hey, this is a concern, and then on the other side, we have some fairly prominent people saying, no, it's, it's not a concern, even some people who are in the AI field itself. So, so it's a, a big debate in the computer science community, and um, among those of us who care about these issues, is, is the development of artificial intelligence potentially a concern? Uh, I am on the side of Max and Eliezer. I think it is potentially a concern. Um, when I read the defenses of the folks on the other side explaining why they think it's not a concern, I find them very unpersuasive, frankly. So um, I think uh, we've already talked about the challenge of computer security, and of course that ties in with this challenge of, of artificial intelligence uh, immediately, which is as we develop more and more powerful software, um, these online battles, and basically it's kind of, you can think of it as an arms race between um, the defense side, trying to defend the content of our computers, and then the offense side, people trying, people and eventually automated software, trying to break in. Um, so this is like an arms race. It's like an online war 
uh, outside there in the Internet that's going on all the time. Uh, we just don't see it until we start to lose that war. Right. Uh, then we lose, our, we lose our information. So, yes, I absolutely think there's a concern, and uh, it's a concern right now in terms of computer security, and it's only going to get worse over time as artificial intelligence advances. Uh, have you tried Google Translate in the past three or four months? Uh, I haven't tried it, but I've heard rumors that it's better. Have you been playing yeah, around with I, that? Yes. Um, about uh, two months ago, there was a cover story in the New York Times Sunday Magazine section. And it's very well written, and it was uh, a really striking story. It was about... Uh, Google set up a team of only about six people. It's amazing what, what a small group can do to apply neural nets to Google Translate. And to test it, um, uh, what I did was I went to the little uh, gizmo app on the Macintosh that will translate. I took a paragraph in English, translated it on the Mac to Chinese, and then from Chinese back to English, and it was gibberish. And, you know, it's, that's how it's be, Google Translate had always been, that, you know, if you then take that and you really work hard, you can sort of figure out what they're talking about. With the new Google Translate, and they only have six languages, Chinese being the first, but they'll eventually have all of them. They've been applying neural nets, and uh, you take a sophisticated paragraph in English, translate it into Chinese, translate it back, and it's literature. It's like 99% dead on. And uh, mostly the same words, but even when it has different words, it usually keeps the meaning. And so I was really impressed with it. So, you know, looking back, neural nets had been around for a long time, and we were told that it took huge amount of computing power and huge amount of data. Well, it turns out Google has both. <laughs> so uh, they're really making this stuff work. It is. It's coming, as you're pointing out here. Now, the big challenge, uh, I, I have been persuaded, is that the challenge will, will come when artificial intelligence is able to uh, write, to actually read literature and understand it. Um, even now, with, um, with the neural net translation process that you're describing, my guess is if we were to sit down with those engineers and say, yes, this is great, it's very cool, it gives the impression that this machine understands the text, but would you say it really understands the text? I think they would say, not really, no, not the way that you and I use the term understand. It doesn't really understand the words. However, someday, uh, someday uh, these, these systems will understand the words well enough to to take action and move forward, and then to actually learn. This is, will, will be when you have automated learning of these, of these systems actually can take a text, say, a physics text or um, an engineering text, and actually understand the content. Mm -hmm. And that, that will be the great leap forward. I think that will be uh, the moment when we go from from machines that pretend to be smart to pretend to machines that really, really are smart. And I don't know how, once that starts, I, I don't see how you stop that process. And then we will be outclassed 
mentally by these machines. So I'm going to declare myself, I was one of those people who said they'll never learn chess. So I was wrong on that. Or they'll never beat a, you know, a grandmaster. But uh, I'll declare myself a skeptic on what you just described. How do you feel about the, the likelihood of that ever happening? I think it will happen. I don't have a good feel for when it will happen um, because my job at Foresight is to anticipate problems and, and head them off uh, regardless of what the odds are. Um, my job is to say, all right, could this happen? And if it could happen, what's the earliest it could happen? And what do we do about it? And the earliest time estimate I have heard for what I just described uh, by somebody who knows the field is four years. Wow. Yeah, that's the earliest, of course. I mean, well, you can no find time. <laughs> it's, it's no time at all, no. Now, of course, you can, there, that's the shortest time. Um, you can find many, many people who will argue, no, no, it's going to take, you know, a long, long, long time, you know, what far beyond today's current lifespan. So, you know, though those folks are out there. Um, however, um, you know, we have been surprised repeatedly by what's been happening in the AI field lately. The time frames are shortening. That's definite. If you look at if you look at the surveys of experts, their time frames are shortening. So they also have been impressed by the uh, by the advances in this field. Yeah, and and again, I I recommend to our listeners <clears throat> uh, go online to nytimes.com for the New York Times. Find this article I was talking about, and it's a really good inside story of how this group uh, did the project and uh, to find you know some just a handful of people. I remember way back when. Uh, Microsoft was working with IBM, and they had DOS, and then they were working on the next generation operating system, and IBM took the lead, and I think it was OS2 was what it was called. And uh, Microsoft, Bill Gates and Microsoft were just aghast at seeing IBM throw hundreds and hundreds of programmers at this task and getting only getting further and further behind. And Microsoft says, okay, you guys go do that. We'll just go do Windows. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, to zip the thing out. So um, a small group of dedicated people can do incredible stuff when they really get focused. That's true. And one thing we need to realize uh, here in the U.S., we tend to just assume that, oh, of course, these breakthrough developments will happen in the United States. But um, I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore. It's not true that the U.S. is in the lead on every scientific and technological area, if that ever was true. But we tend to assume it's true here. We're, we're pretty arrogant that way. Uh, so I think uh, we need to get used to the idea that other countries um, can do science and technology, that there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening now in China, for example, and realize that, um, that, it, that it matters who comes up with these advances. Whether artificial intelligence jumps to the level I described or if it just keeps continuing its current progress level, either way, it matters a huge amount 
who gets these powerful technologies first. Right. Uh, even a, even something as simple ahead. as security, whoever gets the quantum computer can crack all security codes. There you go. I mean, that's the kind of thing um, where you have to look ahead and say, wow, should we really build a whole system based on encryption when we know that these quantum computers are coming and that they're going to be able to crack this encryption? So how is that going to affect our economy if we've built everything? And, and we really have pretty much every company now is using encryption somehow to transfer funds around, for example. So how doesn't that just sort of break our economy when that happens? So we need to look ahead and say, wow, how do you anticipate this? Why, you know, if we know this is coming, can't we prepare for it? Yeah. Uh, I see one of the things, speaking of doing everything with uh, tracking everything on the computer, that one of the things you're interested in is uh, cyber currencies and blockchain. So um, maybe you could explain to our listeners what is a, a cyber currency and what is blockchain? Well, um, probably your readers have heard of Bitcoin. I'm guessing they've heard of Bitcoin, B-I-T-C-O-I-N. And that is a digital online currency, which is not under the control of... A, most currencies are issued by governments. We know that, right? There's the U.S. dollar, and then there's the euro over in Europe and all that. Those are governmental currencies. Um, and that's been true for a long time. It's been a long time since um, people actually used, for example, the earlier currencies, such as gold and silver, to do real transactions in the real world. It's just not that common. So we all use these government currencies, uh, but they have things like inflation, they have crashes, there are, there are issues with governmental currencies. So um, a while ago, uh, people started trying to come up with digital online currencies that will be based uh, based on software and will have certain laws of inflation that are built into the currencies. Because um, those of us who are old enough to remember high inflation know that it basically destroys your savings. So uh, if you want to have any kind of savings, you want control over the inflation rate. So with these digital currencies, whoever designs them builds in a certain inflation rate, either zero or whatever they think is a reasonable one. And then you know for sure that, oh, no matter what happens, this currency cannot inflate away the way that certain currencies can do. We see that, that process happening now, for example, in Venezuela, and it basically impoverishes everybody. So there are these online currencies now. Uh, you can buy them. It's legal to buy them and hold them. And you can use them to, to buy things. Uh, and they're not controlled by the government. They are controlled by um, whoever designed them. There's a, there's, there's a software, a set of software rules that controls how much of these currencies exist and how, and how to move them around. So it's just a, a different way of, of holding value. Um, you can hold your value in U.S. dollars in a bank account, or you can hold value as bit Bitcoin, or or there are other ones. For example, Ethereum is another one. You can you can hold value in those, uh, and 
have them not be subject to the inflation rate that can happen with governmental currencies. Interesting. So for our listeners who watch the TV series uh, Silicon Valley, <clears throat> the uh, original plot line is that uh, this guy has developed, they're trying to launch a photo sharing company. And the moment I heard it, I knew what was going to happen, that they had developed a lossless means of compression so that you could compress the computer material uh, so that you could send more information through a channel without any loss. And that was the real value. And because uh, I had been involved years ago with uh, fractal compression. So uh, <clears throat> to make the cyber currency work, the Bitcoin inventor or inventors developed something called blockchain, which is a ledger for keeping track of all of this. And it may be that this online unhackable blockchain ledger is going to be the real revolution. So have you been exposed to anybody doing other projects with blockchain? There's a lot of projects with blockchain out there right now. Um, basically, what the, the projection is, the claim is, that um, blockchain technology enables cutting out the middleman in a lot of, uh, in a lot of interactions for example, things like banking, uh, things like tit uh, real estate titles, uh, insurance, these, these sorts of businesses that are sort of based on keeping track of things. Um, and there's, as, as you know, we pay a lot of money overhead to the banks, insurance companies, title companies uh, to keep track of things for us. If we could cut them out of the loop somehow, if there were a way to get rid of that overhead, um, the costs of doing these types of transactions would fall dramatically. Um, also, it would be tremendously disruptive to these other industries. So let me just as we go ahead. Yeah. So let me give our listeners two examples. So the bank borrows money from the Fed at two percent, and then lends it to me on my credit card at eighteen percent, and it pockets the the sixteen percent difference. Why can't I borrow money at Two and a half percent directly from the Fed. It means a lot more computer records, but today we can do that. Another example is when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, the government said, I guess you own your own apartment. Uh, so then you'd go to buy an apartment and you'd go, you'd, you'd save up money, borrow money from friends. There were no mortgages. You'd go with a suitcase full of cash and buy the apartment and hope that that guy hadn't sold the apartment to three other people earlier that morning and because there was no title insurance. And so we can see how uh, the kinds of things that we struggle with, we struggle with our credit cards, the Russians struggle with do they really own the apartment, and uh, that these kinds of things can suddenly be securely solved. That's right. That's exactly right, John. And one of the big problems around the world, not in the U.S. and the more developed countries, but in the developing countries, apparently, many, many times, there is no secure title to the land. Uh, either it's not clear who owns it, or there's some kind of verbal understanding about who owns it, but it's, there's no documentation, no proof, which makes it very hard to buy and sell. It makes it very hard to get a mortgage. 
on these properties. So it really holds back folks in the developing world. If they could short-circuit that whole process and develop um, some kind of title holding that was uh, both agreed, widely agreed upon and also very inexpensive, which is critical for them, right. um, it would be a tremendous economic benefit for them and would really uh, free up their economies to grow much faster. So that's one of the hopes is that uh, by cutting out these middlemen, sometimes they're corrupt, corrupt middlemen, um, we can free up economic transactions. Like our, our, our banks are not corrupt. They just charge 18% interest on your credit card. <laughs> Well, that's right, John. And your point about why can't you just borrow at 2.5%, I think, um, and not just from the Fed, why can't you borrow at 2.5% from your neighbor or from from a group of people who want to do lending? Why can't they do that and identify you in particular? They could look at your background and go, wow, this guy's totally safe investment. Um, we feel perfectly comfortable lending to him at 2.5%. Um, and, and cut out, there's no governmental involvement at all in that case. So um, so that's the prospect, is that people will be able to make their economic transactions um, very directly and very reliably without a lot of supervision from these very expensive bureaucracies, which can sometimes be not too honest. And uh, so one of the people working on this from the PayPal mafia is Max, Max Levchin, who uh, is one of the founders of PayPal. And so one of his projects now is a totally new form of uh, credit. I hadn't heard that, but if Max is doing it, then it's probably pretty interesting. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you, are you familiar with the new book, Machine Platform Crowd? No, this one I have not heard of. Okay, it's Machine Platform Crowd, Harnessing Our Digital Future by Eric Bierjolfson and Andrew McPhee. And they wrote um, uh, Industrial, what is it, something like Industrial Revolution 3.0 or something like that. I'm not, I have to look that up. But they, um, they cover everything we're talking about. And they have very good explanations of what blockchain is and its implications, um, et cetera. But anyway, going through all of your fantastic interests here, um, tell us about your interests and what you see coming in space settlements. And uh, is, uh, is Elon Musk going to get us to Mars? <laughs> well, uh, Mars isn't my favorite, but I have to say, if anybody can get us to Mars, it probably would be beyond. Um, I think um, there's 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 a lot of excitement in the space community now because things uh, seem to be moving forward finally after a long period of kind of floundering around. Um, private enterprise is is doing better and better. Uh, we've all I hope you've all seen the videos of the landing of these rockets that uh, Jeff Bezos, this company, has, has done. It's uh, tremendously exciting to see these things landing. Um, you know, we all grew up with these things going, they go up, but then they don't come back. They don't come down again. They don't land in the way that you would hope 
that a reusable vehicle would land. So let me let, uh, let, let me interrupt the way the way Elon Musk puts it is: What do you think it would cost to fly from New York to California if, upon landing, they crushed the jet and built a new one? <laughs> exactly. So right. So so this idea of reusability is is pretty exciting, but. But more so than that is the overall, getting the overall costs down. Cost of space transportation has always been the big issue, and I think we're finally seeing those costs start to come down. So there's a lot of excitement, um, and which brings up the question of, well, what are we trying to do here? What is the goal? Obviously, Elon Musk, as you said, has this goal of colonizing Mars. It's not at the top of my list. Um, I personally am not excited about going to live on Mars. I think it's great that other people want to go, and, and that's, that's wonderful. Um, uh, there are other people who think, well, we should go to the moon and develop a moon capability and have a moon base. Um, then there are the folks who are more excited about putting, um, putting settlements and industry uh, at the L5 point, which is a particular stable point um, in the, uh, above the Earth. Uh, my view, having been part of this crowd for many decades now, is that I think what we should do is what, make econ- what makes economic sense. So uh, whatever is the most viable economically, whatever is economically sustainable, um, whatever has a market, that's the way to go because otherwise it, you're basically setting up a charity and something that needs to be funded continually. And governments just have shown that they are not interested in continually funding forever space projects. So, so that, what we need to do is find for-profit things that work. So that might be uh, Peter Diamantis. I forget the name of his company that uh, uh, they found an asteroid with a trillion dollars worth of platinum and they're going to go get it. That's the kind of thing we need to think about. We need to think about what can we do that actually is economically self-sustaining, that, can, that is not going to require continual subsidies, because those subsidies are erratic. They don't continue. So we need to make it profitable and let, the, let industry show what it can do in this area. So we, we only have a few more minutes, and uh, one of the things that has really you know, impacted the world in the past couple of decades has been social media and the way, uh, you know, we organize ourselves and our relationships, et cetera. Uh, what's your take on where social media is going and how would you describe its impact on our culture today and going forward? Well, there was the original hope, and I think, you know, this is the kind of thing that drove folks like Mark Zuckerberg to establish Facebook is, you know, high connectivity, high communication, and this this would lead to high quality communication and uh, a better connected world, and we'd be be more civilized somehow. Uh, But if we look at what seems to be happening on these social media platforms, Instead, it seems to be more polarizing, and uh, people are withdrawing into their little echo chambers where um, you only he- you, you hear, first you hear exaggerated uh, views on all sides, uh, and then you tend to withdraw into your own little group of, of people who all agree with you. So this was not the goal, 
this, I'm sure this was not the vision that anybody was wanting, for sure. So it's, it's, a, it's a question of how does human behavior interact with the particular software code that's running. So yeah. we're going to have to rethink all this and say, all right, how do we come up with software code that encourages people to be polite, encourages people to be moderate, encourages people to uh, engage with others who disagree with them in a way where we're making progress rather than alienating each other. I think there are ways to do that, and I, I'll bet you the folks over at Facebook right now are having this exact same discussion Whoa. and saying, wow, we have created something that was not really what the goal it wasn't really our goal to set up something that's polarizing and creates echo chambers. So how can we redo the code um, to not do that? And one of the big problems is that the reason it, it's doing this is that it's, uh, their software is optimized for uh, encouraging people to click on things. Mm. So and listen, people, yeah. we're, Go we've got to wrap up. So take, sure. a, a, take a half a minute to... What should people know about you and Foresight and any place, any links you want to send them? Sure. So um, by all means, visit our website at foresight.org, as John mentioned at the beginning. Um, for the general public, probably the most fun thing, if you've enjoyed these topics, if you like the kinds of things John talks about, especially on this show, uh, we have a, a weekend specifically where we talk about these at, at, for the uh, intelligent general audience, and that is called the Vision Weekend. Uh, this year it's December 2nd and 3rd in San Francisco, and we'll be publicizing that on our website pretty soon. So if you enjoy this kind of thing and you want to hear more of it and meet fellow like-minded folks like John who's been to our events, uh, come to San Francisco December 2nd and 3rd and join in. I think you'll have an absolute blast. And if you can't make it, just monitor the website, and you'll be able to watch the videos from our workshops. Great. So, Christine Peterson of Foresight, thank you. This is John LaBelle. You've been listening to Visionaries. We're here on PRN.FM, the Progressive Radio Network, every Monday.